Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric. We've got the show. It's called Double Feature. On it is Michael Kester. That's right. I'm here today to put you on the spot and ask you who was the patron who told us to do the imposters today? Trying to dig us out of a ditch is the abbot of unreason. Oh, great. As for the imposters, we'll receive the imposters. I'm uh this is this was a good week for this because it's quite a funny double feature and I'm just depressed as fuck. So great. I feel yeah. like this is well, it's, about what I'm looking for. So we're we're pairing that with a film that I call With Nail and I. Uh both of these films also appropriate about two people who claim that they're uh successful at a thing that they're failing at. Um welcome to double feature. Um and <laughs> I think double feature is pretty good. I'm I'm still um I'm not saying it's not good. I'm bullish on double feature. I'm just saying if there were a time to act, it would be now. Go to patreon.com forward slash double feature. And you too, uh, you could pick a movie, um, or you could just, you know, save our show. That you do or you could do both. You could executive produce. You could go back into the annals of double feature history and um, uh, listen to opinions that no doubt are different uh, now. Here's why we got to keep this show going. I, I could give you three reasons, really. One, we got to finish this journey. We have to finish the journey. Mm-hmm. We've come so far on the journey, we have to finish it. Two, there is a very ridiculous final episode of the year. Oh, coming, yeah, I forgot about which, that. Which, by the way, involves something you don't see very often on Double Feature, which is a brand new film, sort of. I mean... <laughs> I mean, this year, uh, this year film-ish. It's, it's in the last calendar year. Well, it's in the last year anyways. It's a relatively new. I'm saying it's a new film. It's a late 2021. No, it's within the last 365 days. I'm calling it... Calling it a new film. But look, you wanted to do this in some weird fucking order. What are you doing with this? Yeah, so I want to do the impostors first. Um, that's the last time I'm going to do that. Uh, <laughs> this is not the one I thought I would I would ding you on the name of every time. But uh, I want to do the impostors first, one, because I think that it sort of the conversation will flow better. But also I like uh, the impostors and with nail and I. Yeah. It reminds me of those stupid t-shirts that you can buy. <laughs> yeah. I'm with So with The Imposters is, uh, it's, it's very important to note with this movie uh, that it is, it is, it is uh, I believe, written and directed by one Stanley Tucci and also starring. And this is something that we've seen on Double Feature a lot, but not something we've actually called out. And I'm going to call it out today on the show while this is someone else's responsibility and there's somebody whom I can offend. You know, just let's do it then. You can only offend them so much. Their name is literally the Abbot of Unreason. That's true. It's not exactly like we could look them up in the phone book. So there's this sort of like deep subsect of cinema 
and we've done it on the show. The one that comes to mind to me, and and this was something I put on the show a long time ago, is the adventures of Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of like inside set of movies where when actors make movies, it doesn't feel like a normal movie. It feels like a group of friends hanging out making a movie. And I feel like when you're watching the imposters, it the the cast is insane. I mean, it's just it's it's Richard Jenkins and it's Allison Janney and Steve Buscemi and Alfred Molina and all of these people just sort of come in. You can't but just drop Alfred Molina like we hear this name all the time. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, this, he's the Spider-Man. He's in Spider-Man. If I you're know, in a Marvel that, movie, fuck isn't off. Isn't that nuts though? Yeah. It's just, you know which one threw me, by the way? Let's talk about this cast for a minute yeah. before you close this point out because I just feel like Matt Malloy's in this, Lily Taylor's in this, uh, Tony Shalhoub. Yeah. It's Isabella Rossellini, Bill Connolly. Yeah. The cursed Woody Allen even is uh, in the film. But the one that fucking, I don't know if you caught this or not, but did you notice that Michael Emerson is in this film? No, I missed it. Yeah. But the thing that's crazy about this is, is, um, you know, you have this, this movie and of course... The premise is, what if we acted, right? That's essentially the, you want a log line is, what if actors acted? That's, mm. and they saved the day with their, with their acting skills. Um, so it feels very inside baseball. It's like very much actors acting for actors. Uh. And a lot of the like gags are really odd uh, in movies like this because, um, Again, I just feel like you get a bunch of people together, right? This happens This happens even with you and I. If we're trying to put a pair of movies together and we're, we're doing it for too long, we start saying things like, what if we did the pair we're doing next week? And it sounds like a really good idea. And then you kind of get out of it and you go, how does it make any fucking sense? How does this fit in the context of anything uh-huh. that the subtitles are backwards in a mirror for one scene randomly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that it isn't really smart in a vacuum. It's just that when it just feels like there's no, it's, it, you know what it is, man? It's fucking improv. It's yes and everything. Oh yeah, I was going to say that is slapstick, right? Yeah. Yeah, what better word is there to describe something that's just like 10 levels of over the top that just looks like you're on, like you, sometimes you have a something that seems like it was created in a vacuum, like say the name of um of a, uh, Okay, we have this camera store out here, big camera store called B&H. Mm-hmm. They call their credit card Payboo. Now, I don't know exactly how they arrived at Payboo. It's a terrible name for anything. But I do know that it was workshopped by 12 people in a room. And by the end of the day, it made sense, you know, <laughs> like, right. like right. that sort of thing. So what if you took that one day meeting and you just starve those people for like yeah. four days straight and that's how you get slapstick? Right. It's like the semantic satiation of just ideas Yeah, yeah. is what it is. But I feel like also the thing that's really, that I just, I in my heart believe this really happened in this movie, whether or not it did is unimportant because it's how the movie feels. Because I feel like Stanley Tucci and, you know, Stanley Tucci calls up his, I don't know, fucking neighbor, Steve Buscemi, uh-huh. and goes, I'm making this movie. It's about actors acting. 
they're going to be on a boat. And the thing, the, the power of being on a boat is that essentially every room can be a vignette of characters. Nothing needs to actually align. It doesn't need to tell a cohesive story. You just go, we're all on this boat together and whomever we are must gel. Do you want to be in it? Steve Buscemi goes, sure. Uh-huh. I'm not in Boardwalk Empire yet. And then Stanley Tucci goes, what would you like your character to be? And that's how I feel like every character in this movie was created. It, it feels like all of these actors, actors, were asked, if you could pick your character in a comedy, what do you think would be the funniest thing for you to do? And Steve Buscemi's like, what if I were like a lounge singer that wanted to murder himself? Richard Jenkins goes, what if I were like a grifter? Alice and Janney, I would also like to be a grifter, but with a French accent. It just feels very much like these characters were invented. And then they sort of sat down and went, what is their story? It's a very character-centric movie. The story doesn't make a lot of sense in so much that there is even, honestly, one of my favorite jokes in the whole movie is at the end when Lily Terry Lily Taylor's character goes, one thing I don't understand is when the baker gave you these tickets, why Uh, didn't you just sell them? Yeah. I mean, that is the sort of like, doesn't need to be here of the, of the movie, which is great. It says so much about what kind of movie this is and the nonsensicalness of it. The, the sort of like, we use that as an elaborate ruse to get you to sit here for 90 minutes. That's the reason we did that. Sure. Oh, I also think right from the onset, if I want to push your your headcanon here even further before uh, popping the balloon, I guess, all of the characters have this sort of, uh, okay, so you can go from room to room. Every room can be a new character. That's exciting. We're just going to throw these characters together and see what happens. That's how we build the scenes. So like you said, very, very improv very like exercise-based, like they do on the bed, the kind of exercises. They seem like acting exercises. But what better uh, just, you know, telling layman's about a acting exercise than like your character has a secret. Say they say they're this, but they're actually this. Okay, now go do the scene. And it just seems like very basic kind of, um, right. you know, fodder to play with in scenes like this. But that also ends up being, I mean, thematically, my favorite part of this is like the imposters. And I don't know if this totally reads, but the imposters, I guess it does. They mention it in the movie. The imposters are not just the two characters, but like everybody on the boat. Right. Right. That's sort of the conclusion they come to in the end. And they do it in, a, in this wonderful way that when one person is shouting imposter, everybody on the boat has a fucking panic, which is like... Why you do any of this just to get to that scene mm-hmm. is just so, so fucking good. I had not made that connection in my mind until that moment. And then I'm like, oh, this is this nice layer of kind of cleverness that, I mean, if it was lost on me, then I'm at least like, look, it worked on one human. So sure, I'm allowed to sit there and be like, this is fucking genius. Nobody would have saw this coming because I'm sitting there by myself watching it. So. So I had this same feeling that you did about this movie and what blew my mind even more is to look and see that, you know, I think part of it is the way it looks. It sort of seems like Stanley Tucci knows all these people. 
they all want to get together and do a movie. Maybe they're part of some acting troupe. Right. You know, it, it kind of struck me like this is like a New York acting club, um, almost like uh, one of these Louis Mall movies that we saw, or what is it, Vanya on 42nd Street, right? Or just something that's kind of like, these guys all get together and sort of do this, and now they're going to do it in a movie. But the movie, it just looks a certain way, or I don't know how how exactly to put this, but when you watch it, it almost seemed like it was going to happen anyways, whether they were going to film it or not, that these people were getting together and they kind of had this idea. And it was the power of Tucci knowing all these people that they made this independent film, mm-hmm. the kind of film where you could say they took turns, you know, operating the camera and it was made like almost Evil Dead style or something. Sure. With this like sure. very ragtag, very independent. And that isn't the fucking story of the film at all. It is an absolute studio film. Wow. Which is crazy to me because it feels so independent. Crazy to me. Yeah. It does not. They Mm -hmm. got the concept together and they went and they pitched it. And they had negotiations with the studio and the studio paid them, you know, a proper budget. I don't know what you'd sure. consider a proper budget for a film this size, but more money than you and I could get together to make a film or a podcast for that matter. Or a film about a podcast. Yeah, I think it's something on the the single digit millions of dollars. Yeah. But it's the kind of money that you wouldn't really have gotten independently just from being like, oh, I'm an actor, I've made a couple things, I got a chunk of change. They're not like bobcatting this movie together, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. It's not, you know, Bobcat Goldthwait made uh, Sleeping Dogs Lie, and I think his story was that he directed this movie by getting 20 grand together and hiring people off Craigslist. And that's the the sort of way this reads to me, like, wow, well, you got an impressive cast. It must be because you knew all of them. Mm-hmm. But also they're operating with millions of dollars, which is just uh, strange sure. that they managed to keep this feeling of like a bunch of friends doing this movie through the whole thing. That kind of makes me like it better because it feels more like a, um, it feels more like a bottleable commodity than, mm. you know what I mean? So, Evil Dead sort of has this uh, this built-in gumption of of being able to be a movie, even though it's a bunch of friends out in a cabin, you know, with no money. The fact that a movie with an actual production budget manages to still feel that way mm-hmm. feels like there's there's some intrinsic thing that that people should be looking at the imposters going. How do we make movies feel like this? Not every movie. I don't want every movie to feel this way. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a pretty but, bold claim to get out there and be like, guys, all movies should feel like the imposters. Yeah. Dogma 22. All <laughs> movies yeah. feel, number one, all movies feel like the imposters. Uh, no, but I just feel like the fact that, the fact that it, if, if one could turn on this aesthetic, I feel like that's something that people would like to be able to recreate. Because I'll tell you, I had a weird thought watching this movie, and I, a couple weird thoughts, many. Um, but uh, as as time continues to march on, 
uh, and movies from 1998 feel increasingly like they're from 1982. It was very bizarre for me to watch the ending sequence of this movie where they're all on the deck of the boat Mm -hmm. and go, this came out a full four years after Titanic. Well, it's it's also like the the kind of era of the movie. Like I half wondered if it wouldn't end on a gag that they're on the Titanic. Sure. You know, it's interesting that you say, I mean, look, totally different line of thought. But uh, what what era, what, what is this like the 30s or 40s, something like that? Yeah. Um, or the silent era or... It's somewhere between there and, and actually just the 1998 situation. Well, I can't totally tell because the they're on a fake ship, a very fake ship, an insanely fake ship. Right. So sure. it's... Um, I'm also not sure that they're aware that the ship is insanely fake. I love how the movie ends and they, they kind of like pull back the curtain a, little, a bit. Mm-hmm. and show you that actually this is a set and we're on a dolly. I'm like, we know it's a set. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, we are aware this is not a real boat. Probably speaks once again to the kind of like bunch of friends making a movie element. Yeah, so trying to place exactly where this is is strange because it uh, it has the sensibility of like silent film or Chaplin film sure. or something that's... The performances are very hammy and very over the top. The way that, you know, the way that Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and, and Lon Chaney played these silent roles when you don't have all the senses to let people know what you're performing. And I think that's intention. I mean, I know that's intentional because if you think of the opening sequence in this movie, it is silent mm-hmm. or mostly silent. It's There's no lines, right? There's no dialogue. Yeah. And then they sort of critique that. And man, if that ain't a movie, if that isn't a sign that this is a movie made by actors for actors, let's do our opening scene without the power of dialogue. And then the following scene is us critiquing that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Man, the only thing that could, the only thing that could drive that point home even more is have the following scene include Woody Allen. Again, cursed, untouchable Woody Allen. Can't, (laughs) can only draw a big red circle around him. Can go no further. Yeah, the the scene that follows that, I mean, after the kind of like little exercises and stuff, their first plot to get the money to go into this bakery is also like, it's almost like you guys were doing better as silent film partners. Mm -hmm. You know, like inviting talking into this acting is not making it uh, better. Hi, doggy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's very the room. It's very the room. <laughs> yeah, and so that's really funny to me too because these this is sort of telling the plight of actors, but it's also, um, it makes a gag of like how, I just what bad actors they are, really. The characters are not good actors, but it still deals with like the kind of petty squabbles and what they think. I don't know. Like you said, I guess it's a lot of inside baseball. Movies in general, though, used to represent plays a lot more. And I think that is really the thing that makes this feel like mm-hmm. the 40s to me. Is that, you know, today we, we might talk about this like a bottle film. 
but in a bottle film or referencing the previous language of other films. We're going, oh, this film managed to stretch a whole thing with one set. And this film, you know, it was predicated on this film that did it. And then remember Buried. Well, remember actually when Cube did this in a smart way and you just go back and back and back. But it's all references to films. Mm -hmm. Whereas like this movie... We could talk about it like it's a bottle film on a boat, but it actually takes them a while to get to the boat. Right. It's not like you wouldn't really talk about this movie, I don't think, and exclusively go, what's this movie about? It's about some guys on a boat who get into this. You know, right. It's, it's not like it's not like Jason takes Manhattan. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there is more Manhattan in this movie than Manhattan in Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> that is more the movie that they say they're making and the imposters, right? Right. Yeah. So like we see them do this opening vignette, we see them in their homes, we see them try another scam. So there are and we see them get into this bar fight. And these are all also these um these sets. Uh, these fucking, I think it, they're all Silver Cup sets. Silver Cup is this place in New York, which, uh, funny enough, I was just shooting outside yesterday, which is a, it's a studio in Queens. And so they have this boat set that they're working from, but it's not like let's open on a boat and show the whole movie on a boat. I do feel like they're trying to kind of stretch the story mm -hmm. and do the right things for the story. And that includes being in a bakery, being you know, out to lunch or wherever the fuck you'd say this, you know, this opening scene is. So that that's what makes it feel more play-inspired to me than film-inspired. Mm -hmm. Because in a bottle film, you can just open and you're in the fucking circle and that's the movie. Right. But a play is really more like, well, we can't build a lot of sets, but we're going to try to take you as many places as we can as it is necessary for the characters in the story. And so here it is in the film. Speaking of plays, do we open with Nolan I talking about uh, Chekhov's pee bottle over here, or yeah, we just we might as well. <laughs> this is this is so. Um, this movie, this is another movie about actors, uh, down and out actors who are in dire dire need of money. Um, it's a whole ass different vibe, though. Yeah, it's I mean, a spot on pair, whiplash, but it could not have been. Yeah, yeah, whiplash levels of of fucking of changing changing your your direction here. Um, it's this so this, this it this feels more akin to something like train spotting mm -hmm. than uh, than anything that I know Stanley Tucci have ever been has ever been in. Um, How would you describe it bones. for like an American context? I don't know. You, I don't, I don't think you can. I mean, the only thing it, it's funny because my first thought was, oh, I know the American movie. It's Fear and Loathing, the movie made by a British guy. Yeah, it's got a bit of a Fear and Loathing. It's like a Clerks meets Fear and Loathing or something like yeah. that. I don't know. You could do some dumb, lazy. It's definitely this meets that with it. I feel like it is a decidedly British movie, and I feel like that's important to talk about because this is like a deeply loved cult film, mm -hmm. which is why, as I mentioned uh, before, it was much requested by a lot of listeners on Double Feature. We never got around to doing it. Uh, but it always stuck in our mind to the point where when the plot of the imposters came up, 
you know, the one line that we allow ourselves to read, my brain went, oh, that other movie I've never seen. So that's how yeah. familiar I was with it. You mean when we're pairing them, you're looking at like, sure, what is the top, top, top line synopsis for this? Right. And going, okay, I've hit the word actors, therefore, here we go. Right. And so this movie is, is, is a much beloved, deeply cult film. But that said, it's essentially non-existent in American ethos. I mean, if you, if you do, if you were to pull up, you know, top cult movies, AFI, top cult films, Mm -hmm. this might crack the top 100. Gotta hit that BFI, sir. But that's what I'm saying, yeah, right? You gotta move it's, outside. You're asking the... me. You're asking me to compare this to movies, and the only thing I can compare it to is is British cinema because it is so fucking British. Yeah. Well, I think it's very different than a lot to the of... point where there's a character whose name I can't even pronounce. You have to pronounce <laughs> it for me because you've got fucking inside information over there. I do. Yeah, I have, I have uh, inside line to the Brits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I, I did watch it with subtitles, though, because I don't know my my British uh, that well. When I think about this compared to British stuff, also, by the way, if we want another, another theme for this uh, episode of Double Feature that is very British, I want to call this the Toast of London Tributes show. Have you seen the Matthew Berry show, Toast of London? Yes, I have. So fucking good. So fucking good. So if people need like more British acting send-ups, you should watch that. Really fucking great. I mean, if people if people want to be entertained, just watch Matt Berry stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Matt Berry doing anything. Period. So, you know, I, I think about a lot of the like flat living and things like that, but I feel like even if we had grown up surrounded by British cinema, this movie would still stand out so much. Mm-hmm. For a lot of reasons I'll outline, but but one of the things that we don't, that immediately feels different is the kind of, the kind of like roommate flat situation living. And we talked about this with that, I think it was an Australian film. You remember that movie that was about the like, nine people to a house living situation oh, yeah. in Australia. Died with a falafel in his hand. Yeah. You know yeah. the one. Yeah. Double feature listeners know the one. Yeah. So, you know, the British version of uh, something like that even, uh, like Spaced, like the TV show Spaced, mm-hmm. which was, um, you know, Simon Pegg. Uh, people can look all this stuff up. I'm not going to sure. I'm not gonna yeah. throw Keep every goddamn. British shit. <laughs> So, you know, it's, so it's about flatmates. And mm. I think even in the context of the like British comedy about flatmates subgenre that very much does exist, I can't think of anything that is as, I mean, dark, honestly, yeah. as this. Right. It's beyond even just like, oh, it's dry humor or it's what Americans would call British humor. Mm-mm. It's not just that. It's specifically that it's it it reaches into like a dark part of the soul that I feel like so much of those other comedies don't. That's why I brought up Train Spotting because it's sort of a story that is like too grimy to tell. Mm-hmm. It, it basically, you know, it feels like a story where it feels like a story with no merit, you know? that 
it's there's not really like a redemption arc there's it's just sort of like these grubby dudes and then they go and like meet other grubby people and they kind of just like try and like have a good time anyway yeah it's it's very much like this movie is essentially you know like a clint mansell score away from being requiem for a dream being requiem for a dream yeah well, so what do we have? We have uh, down and out actors again. Mm-hmm. I mean, extremely down and out actors, an array of you know, let's just say drug problems to simplify it. But I think it's specifically drinking, really, mm-hmm. and on the part of Withnell and not the you know the narrator, who I think is credited not the as I. an I, which is of course funny and impossible, even more pro- uh, impossible to pronounce. But then there's also like, um, you know, the retreat to the cottage and everything that happens there. That's like real rough and tumble life. This, I don't even really know how to put it, but this like uh, sexual terrorism that happens to one character, um, the constant threat of, of survival and what he might have to give up or endure in order to survive. And then they get back and they they get the worst news of their whole situation actually after an encounter with the police and things only ever really look up because of basically like, I don't want to say a chance encounter, but one of the characters, their situation looks better at the cause of nothing that we've seen him do in the film. So we haven't like really gotten any of the labor, right? We haven't gotten any of the, we didn't see him try to act so hard or put in, you know, so much time. I mean, I guess we did see him act a little bit uh, in the cottage to survive, but it's not like, um, oh, that finally paid off or it finally worked for him. And even when that happens, it makes the ending like what should be the first good news in the whole movie makes the ending feel like uh, I don't know for me is kind of the bleakest part of the whole yeah movie yeah and maybe maybe bleak's not the right word but it's like the ending to me is sobering sure because uh, no fucking pun intended but it is it's the like this wake up that we've been we've been going along there's been some laughs there's been some gags and then all of a sudden the whole thing catches up with me mm-hmm. which is like hey you went through the, you went through your 20s having a fucking laugh and now the world's just hit you like a fucking ton of bricks yeah and yeah. so suddenly you get this sad music you get the characters separating and it's to me it's like oh wait this is fucking tragic yeah this is awful and then just end of movie yeah <laughs> just it's sort of it's it sort does. of like the proverbial t-shirt you know i i went through with nolan i and all i got was this lousy t-shirt sure <laughs> yeah well i think one of the things that makes it feel like like requiem or makes it feel like uh train spotting was a good one and that's also kind of a flat situation right it's sort of the like daily lives of just right what did you sure. say, like grubby or, you know? Grubby, yeah, grimy people. Kind of the, I mean, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just shallow grave with heroin. Michael, what do you expect? You can't do the washing up. It's impossible. I've looked into it. That scene is so good. The fucking intensity. 
And it so sets the like the pace and tone for the movie too. But it's it's really the kind of stuff that I love about this movie is the intensity that he tries to stop the other character with is just so it pushes so hard and the acting is everything. Mm-hmm. I so sincerely believe that in this world, this is life or death. Mm-hmm. That he goes to that that uh, you know chaotic nuclear space that is the fucking dishes and you know dare you you prod too deep there's a a monstrous you know dog-sized rat that's living inside it or the things they talk about that are sort of like as if some some uh something is becoming sentient at the bottom of all the dishes right but that kind of scummy environment right that kind of everyday disgusting thing they live in and you find that the problems are compounded by you know like not having food and being really on like there's such a thing as like this is the rent's going to be due and we're not going to have it and then there's the kind of like well how many how how much money do you have in your pocket right now and if we put it all together could we go out long enough to just get a drink so that we could stay warm Right. You know, like that kind of level of <laughs> this is the fucking last call for them. And, you know, and drinking like cleaner or whatever the whatever the fuck that is. A lighter fluid, right? Yeah, yeah, lighter fluid. <laughs> Turpentine sure. or lighter yeah. fluid or some shit. Yeah. It's um, you know, these are all the things that catch up with me at the end. These yeah. are all the things where I look back and I, I just think like it's it's kind of the intensity and the bleakness that is funny because it's in a way I guess symbolic of how you feel when you're on the outs when things are just really bleak or when something's not going right or especially moments I would assume something an actor goes through in their 20s I mean I've experienced this in the probably in my early 30s just starting film for the first time and the moments where it's kind of like wow if something doesn't go this is gonna be bad i mean there's this very informative thing from the previous movie that essentially all of with and i encapsulates which is that scene toward the end um you know, I'm not going to spoil anything, but there's a scene toward the end where one of the characters goes, have I seen you in anything? And they sort of like devolve into, (laughs) well, you know, it's a pretty tough business and, you know, it's not all just about your talent and, you know, it's, it's really just, it's stacked against you and it's up that whole, that sort of like pit that they, that those characters fall into when they're asked if, if they've done anything Uh, is, is the pit that these characters are stuck in. Yeah. You know, they're just it, it, they're they're living out this reality of like it ain't all it's cracked up to be, and it's really if if you don't have you don't know the right people, and if it's not just about who you are or how how you perform, it's you could. It's also I almost just quoted Hostel. Uh, if you're not careful, you could lose all your money in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and great for the double feature too, because the dispositions couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. I mean, that movie is. Uh, the the characters are kind of enjoying the comedy of their situation, and while sure. with no one eye is also a comedy, it is so true, real, ugly. It's a movie that 
in a way feels dangerous because you're you're talking about things like you're talking about the pit, you're talking about alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And I guess to some extent depression, but there's I mean with Noel has this like manic kind of energy to him. And our narrator doesn't necessarily not have manic energy also, but has anxiety in a way that I haven't really seen it represented in film that just feels so, you know, to the core. I mean, it's such an excellent portrayal mm-hmm. of that. You get these inner monologues he has just going, oh, like the, the best one to me is when they're at the pub and the guy just fucking calls him a name before he goes in and he starts reading the graffiti on the wall as if he can divine some information about like why that guy's about to fuck him up. Mm-hmm. And he could have just gone right back to the bar and not made a big deal of it and maybe the guy wouldn't have said anything else. But he makes such a scene about it and it becomes what we're going to learn is this character's reaction over and over again, which is like, we are in grave danger. You do not understand. We have to leave. From a writing standpoint, that's so good because he later gets put in this situation with Monty mm-hmm. where, you know, basically in the bar, they're both in a little bit of danger. And we see how Withnil kind of gets out of it. But with Monty, it's all kind of put onto the narrator. Right. And Withnil's just kind of like there enjoying the, the perks of like cottage life not really in any hurry to leave while the narrator has to bear the the brunt of um I mean he's the one who has to to like put on the show evade Monty, you know. There's a part of that that I really like too, which is like it can always be dicey going back and that the movie makes a like a plot point out of this flirtatious gay relationship. Mm-hmm. I also think there's a the kind of like immediate gay subtext immediate as in like not even really subtext sure but like they don't immediately declare what the situational um bit that they're in is right and so there is at least a it's like the world's thinnest level of subtext where it's right under the surface they're just not calling it it's not being stated out loud they're not calling it what it is and i think that part of the film is one of the most fun to me because it creates this insane tension just out of like Mm -hmm. is the movie going to turn this into something else or is it really what it appears to be or is it our our narrators like neurosis and so that's one of the things that's that's really like, it's the most fun the first time you see the film because maybe you don't know where they're going with it or you, right. you could be surprised by that. Once you know that they're going to take it there, I don't know if that tension is you know exactly the same, but it's still, in my mind, when you go back to this era and you think about like the kind of fodder that a gay relationship was used for, Mm -hmm. this is also a male buddy film. Right. And so I think another thing that makes it stand out is you could look back at it and go kind of, okay, this thing is used for fodder. But I think the, there are so many films where there is actual gay subtext in the male buddy relationship, right? That whole nineties era 
of movies of like two dudes do a whatever road trip, whatever kind of thing that that they find themselves in. Every single one of those movies today kind of reads as like also secretly they're gay. They didn't right. they didn't say it, but that's like the right. the unstated kind of pattern that makes all of that work. Right. And this movie literally makes like a direct plot point right. out of this. Yeah, it's it's definitely in that way this movie is way before its time. Yeah. Or of its time and we were all behind its time. <laughs> right. There's a parallel, maybe parallel in time. Who who's really to say? <laughs> we should get out of here. The website is doublefeature.fm. The Patreon is patreon.com forward slash double feature. A big thank you to, of course, the Abbot of Unreason again. But also big thanks. Henrik Dinter, Tom Leonard, Tony Gleed, and John. Where are you, John? John, where are you? We want to make sure you're still alive, John. Send us a message. We need your website descriptions, John. Where are you? (laughs) (laughs) We miss you. All right. Let's let people know what this is. Ah, Tell me all about it. Next time we're going to talk about uh, the morals of murder and getting away with it. We're going to do an Otto Preminger film called Anatomy of a Murder. And then we're going to pair that with a documentary set in Indonesia. I almost said Indonesian documentary, but it's technically not that. Uh, Documentary where the subject is in Indonesia and it's called The Act of Killing. It's sort of like a bad time dressed as a good time, I think is maybe the way... Uh, I would put this pair, but it doesn't matter because as uh, as a double feature listener, you are in fact obligated to watch these two films and come back next week so we can um, uh, wax poetic about them. And until then, watch more fucking film. Okay, bye.